From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting with my longtime collaborators, friends, and co-colleagues at Wharton, faculty colleagues at Wharton, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, the fourth of us is away this week. He will be back. Some combination of us are here almost every week of the year, something like, I don't know, 49, 50 weeks of the year. And we record these typically on Tuesday afternoon as we are today, a little bit earlier, but it's still the afternoon. The show will go up on SiriusXM tomorrow morning, Wednesday morning. We'll be replayed a few times. We'll get the podcast up tomorrow as well. You guys can reach out to us. Easiest is Twitter at WMoneyBall. At W Moneyball is our handle there. We follow all of our guests. We tweet periodically about sports and sports analytics, and we love to hear from you. Pro or con, reach out to us. We have a typical show today in that we're going to be open lines here in the first half and in the second half of a guest. I guess this week, Bill Conley being at the climax of the college football season, at least the regular season, just past rivalry week, heading into conference championship week. Good chance to talk to Bill. We're going to do that in the second half of the show. First half. Fellas, speaking of college football, Eric, I think that might have been the first time you've been to the game. I've never been myself to the game, and it was a good one. It, it was the talked about, we're talking about Michigan Ohio State, Ohio State in the big house in Ann Arbor. We talked all year of it being pretty much the game of the year. People think about it as being one of the top games they've ever played and possibly the top rivalry in the sport. It's a good one to go to is what I'm trying to say, Eric. Also, you picked up the Detroit Thanksgiving game. That's a nice little thing. So give us your doubleheader, your Michigan doubleheader. How'd it go? It was wonderful. I mean, the first thing is it's the first time in a while I've been to games where I don't really have a horse in the race because I don't care. The Lions were home against the Packers. I don't particularly care who wins, except to the degree, while despite wearing Lions gear because of family relatives there, um, it's better for the Eagles if the Lions lost. Gives the Eagles a two-game lead on the NFC. And so I was sort of rooting for the Packers. And my final assessment is I don't care what stats tell anybody for the rest of his career. Uh, Jared Goff stinks. Um, he's, he's no good. He had an absolutely horrific game and not against deep pressure. Like he just missed open receivers, missed open throws, um, made bad choices. Like you could see from where we were sitting, guys wide open and him not under pressure. Like I, he's not only made bad throws, but he made bad choices. Like if you actually, I know we're going to talk about quarterback stats, but an interesting one here is like, you know, if he had made the right choice and the right throw, how much extra points did he give up yeah. by kind of making, yeah. forget that he missed through the ball, he even threw it to the wrong player. So that yeah. was one thing I noticed. Um, Eric, let me just say real quick that yeah. you can see that so much better in person, <clears throat> that's one of those things you really can't evaluate better in person. You see the field so much better, depending on where your seats are, of course. But um, it's interesting that that's what jumps out to you. Go ahead. Yeah, the second thing was the Michigan-Ohio State game. And so, you know, obviously Michigan won the game. But I had the feeling that the be well, the best player on the field was Marvin Harrison Jr. And it wasn't mm -hmm. close. Mm -hmm. And I just have the feeling that if um, the – Ohio State quarterback hadn't thrown two picks, one of which yeah. directly led to seven points. And the other one, which was Ohio State was driving right at the end of the game. I actually thought Ohio State was the more explosive offensive team and that Michigan was just plodding along, not very creative mm -hmm. offense, just, you know, counting on their defense, maybe to bail them out. I, I'm let me just say, I don't think this is any. And my kids and I were saying the same thing. I don't see this ending any different for a Big Ten team this year. Like, I don't see wow. Michigan winning. I can't see Michigan winning the national title. I'm not saying they can't beat Georgia because maybe Georgia's not as good as last year or the Alabama-Georgia winner or possibly even Oregon. Uh, I, I just don't think either of the two Big Ten teams were that great on Saturday. But it was a tremendous game to go to. The excitement was there. The energy was there. Everybody knew this was a crucial game. And I'll, I'll use your words, Kate. It was like a playoff game. It was a quarterfinal playoff game and deservedly so. Yeah, 100%. Eric, I'm curious, uh, being a college football guy, and you're really a pro football guy, and you go to a lot of games. You go to Bucks games every year. You go to Eagles games every year. 
you don't go to that many college games and especially not big time college games like this. This is as big as it gets. What was your sense of the experience and the atmosphere? And this is kind of what college football tends to have over pro football is that that's a hundred thousand people, a hundred plus that you sat in bands, the pageantry of it, the decades and multi-generational rivalry of it. I mean, on that front, what was your experience like? I think the, the level of investment, emotional investment was much higher. I mean, people were crying in, with joy. People were hugging each other. People were like, you know, when a big play would happen, just the amount of high fives and, you know, exhilaration. Also, I'm pretty sure I stood, I'm making it up, 97% of the game. Now, let me just say, the big house doesn't have backs to the seats. There's no dream sitting down anyway. What am I sitting on? I'm sitting on a bench. And I'm sitting on a bench, by the way, with, you know, uh, I'm not the smallest person. I'm thinking about Adi, who's a little bit bigger than me. And you guys are both a little bit bigger than me. Like, I'm not sure five of us, like, we need six seats for five of us in the big house. But, and so what ended up happening, it's very interesting dynamic. What would happen is it's kind of like um, you'd have to layer yourself. Like, the person in front of me was standing back. I have to stand Mm -hmm. forward and vice versa to kind of make enough space. (laughs) But just... I, I felt like like I was exhausted after the game because of the amount of emotional energy that was there. It was it was incredible. Mm-hmm. How, how how much effect does the crowd have on the on the play? Do you think it's dramatically different than in an NFL NFL game? Uh, good question. Um, there were times where it was clear that Ohio State just could not hear. They just could not hear. And also, all the seats in the big house are pretty close to the field. So it's a, besides 110,000 plus people, and I've never been to a game with that many people, um, I think the sound did absolutely affect the game. The other thing that affected the game, and I'm sure this was has been analyzed ad nauseum since, um, you want to talk about a non-analytics coach. Holy moly, Ryan Day has got to be fired. Oh, my God. I, no, hey. fired's a big word. He needs to change his fourth down play calling, for okay. sure. Okay, thank you. Too I, conservative? Oh. I mean, Adi, the, I mean, there was one time, I think it was in the first half, I think it was fourth and one or fourth and a half of half a yard from like the 45-yard line of Michigan. He punted oh the ball. They don't, they don't know about the midfield spike, I call that. Not only that, Adi, that's just, <laughs> I know your work with Ryan on uncertainty. Yeah. This would not be in the uncertainty no. zone. And, and there were only three or four plays where I literally said after the game, if he had made the analytics-based choice, you don't know which way the outcome's going to go. But if you think about, Kate has said this a number of times, when you're not outcome-focused, but you're statistical or process-focused, if he had made the, those other decisions, I just felt Ohio State left points on the field. And I felt bad analytically for the team who put themselves in a position to make plays, and he just made, in my view, the wrong choice. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to talk more college football with Bill Connolly in the next half of the show. Let's talk a little pro football the Philadelphia Buffalo game, speaking about Eric's other football love, was absolutely remarkable. Bills jumped up big. Josh Allen was playing good. Philadelphia chipped away at this thing. Second half really came on, tied it late, and then got it down in overtime. Even Josh Allen had a chance. Josh Allen and the Bills had a chance to end the game with the first overtime possession touchdown. They have lost in that situation before, seemingly unfairly. Couldn't get it done. Settled for a field goal. Eagles go down the field, topped off with a Jalen Hurts run. Great game. Great for the Eagles, who continue to be way ahead in the NFC, and the Bills just continue to not get it done. Even though they clearly have a great team to push the Eagles that far, the Bills have a great team, and they're 6-6. Six and six. Takeaways from the game, guys. Well, my takeaway was, I mean, I think, you know, Josh Allen's an amazing quarterback. And I think that you, you, you saw that on his EPA or whatever that means. Um, I wonder how, how that breaks down as a as a stat to the individual player. Um, and it also, uh, Jalen Hurts didn't look good, um, in, in my estimation. I mean, yet he somehow managed to make these throws when they're needed. And as an analyst, you, you tend to ignore the big play. But when game after game is decided on that last minute big play, you got to wonder, is there a signal there? And I don't have answers. I appeal to you guys. for. Yeah, for I, I, I agree with Adi's assessment. I think if you strip away who won the game, well, the Eagles won the game. Jalen Hurts didn't win the game, but the, the Eagles won the game. 
I think Josh Allen looked like the better quarterback than Jalen Hurts. And they're talking about Jalen Hurts as being the MVP this year. That's one thing. The second thing is Josh Allen, you know, I think he's had eight straight games with an interception. So he's like the guy's a, a turnover machine. That's the second thing I would say. Um, the, th- the third thing was that. Um, I think we have Josh Dobbs on the telephone for you, Eric. Josh. Oh, Josh Dobbs. Yeah. The um, Josh Allen. The third thing I would say is that maybe this stat means something. Maybe, you know me, I love to bring out these sets. Adi, let's say, would you agree with the following that it, basically in overtime, it's 50-50, right? Who wins, right? Yeah, I think it's so, pretty right, much. Yeah. Suppose I told you a quarterback was 0-6 in overtime. Would you would you be any, would you have any concern about a quarterback that was 0-6 in overtime, Adi? Well, Put it this way, as a Bayesian, I do shrink, I do take the data into account, but my priors are so strong that I don't move it that much. But yeah, a little bit. That's Josh Allen's record in overtime. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah. So to me, so do you got, let me, I'm going to ask my statistical question I ask you every week. I've just told you this, maybe you knew it. Let's pretend you didn't know it, Adi. I just tell you now that Josh Allen's 0-6. The next time they're in an overtime game, how far away from 50% are you moving? Uh, I guess it's depending on who against, but not much. Um, that's basically, I'm, not. I'm not moving much at I all. I knew the two of you would say, I'm moving heavily, heavily <laughs> off 50%. <laughs> you know, it reminds me of my Thanksgiving Day probability question. My my sister's but see, but don't, 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 Go Real quickly, I have to protest a little bit because yeah. the end of last season, when the Bills lose to the Chiefs in overtime, Josh Allen didn't see the football. And yet yeah. he's got a he's got a he's got an additional loss on his record. It's not it's not an appropriate stat for him. Yeah, and there's also there's so many teams and so many quarterbacks. I mean, how many? I mean, is six a lot of overtime games? Probably is in a, in a relatively short career. Um, but there's that's the problem is multiplicity. There's every list has a top and bottom, and uh, two to the you know one ha- one over two to the sixth. It's not the smallest number, right? I mean, it's probably, it may be the worst uh, stat among the current current active quarterbacks, possibly. Um, but is it so crazy? Uh, it's an. I mean, yeah, I would, this is I, funny. You, you say this it's enough evidence for me to move off of fifty percent. That's all I'm saying. And you yeah. again, Cade's point is well taken. All those losses aren't attributable to him. Um, but I mean, you know, to me, it's enough evidence that I would move off of 50%. Well, listen, if we quickly have to move off of 50%, the question is how far, right? Yeah, not very, not, not very well. I'm not going to put much diagnosticity in the signal. So that that's what I'm going to dilute the movement by making that signal. Not very diagnostic, by the way, a small sample, another one from your first conversation, Ryan day lost the last three to Michigan. People are like losing their, their minds over being 0 and three talk about a small sample. I mean, I understand. Three sucks. If you're Ohio State, it's a long time to go. It's still a very small number. And the games have been super tight. And I don't know. I mean, he's responsible for McCord, but then he's not fully responsible for McCord. Uh, I don't he's know. One, he's one and three. He's one game away from two and two. Yeah, ex- exactly. Um, all right. Real quickly on the on the on football, that I, I think it's increasingly interesting to see how this AFC uh seed seeding works the number one seed of course gets a buy massive advantage in the last few years there hasn't been a lot of drama around that in the in the nfc there's no drama eagles have a two-game lead but in the afc we have four different teams with three losses right now the ravens have a half game lead but it doesn't really matter in fact in a tie-breaking situation against all three of those other teams the ravens right now would would not get it because one of their all their losses are going to say afc teams every one of the jags uh, who else are we talking about? Dolphins and Chiefs. One of their losses comes against the NFC team, so they have an advantage to the tiebreaker. Fun down to the wire. The Ravens play two of those teams, by the way. Ravens play. The Ravens have by far the hardest of the schedules among those four teams. They have both the Dolphins and the Jags ahead of them in these last five games. That's very, very exciting Super- and very, very important who gets that one seed. Again, a stat my son told me the other day, Patrick Mahomes has never played a road playoff game. That's absurd. Just completely crazy. Um, speaking of playoffs, Sumer kicks out a nice sim after every weekend, and we're seeing some separation. Eight teams at 90% or higher to make the playoffs. 11 teams at 10% or lower not to make the playoffs. And 13 floating around there in the middle somewhere. Fun to keep an eye on those things. But you see some real disappointments with the Chargers and Bengals, for example, already below 10%, two of the real favorite teams coming into the season. Um, guys. 
What else from around the world? We got these football rankings. Adi, you had this comment about EPA. If you look at the quarterback performance this past weekend, well, you see, this again is from Sumer. You see Sumer. You look at Jalen Hurts, and he never does well in EPA. He's a, he's an MVP candidate. And what what's going on here? And then you see, it it, it I just wonder what 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 should I be making of EPA as a statistic? Um, so you're, you're you're raising this because Sumer Sports rates their quarterback performances, their weekly performances, using total EPA as the as the metric. And by that metric, Josh Allen number one. By that metric, Jalen Hurts is not in the top ten. Well, he didn't have a good week, uh, you know, game this week anyway. But in general, you you what's I mean, I think there's a, a strong correlation between EPA and our ratings of a quarterback. Yet sometimes there's not. And what, do we think of it as a as a as a good measure of a quarterback success? I mean, what is our collective analytics opinion on it? I think in recent years, so I don't have a position on the EPA per se, and I, I, I do. You know, we we have a lot of respect for Eric Eager, who runs the research group at Sumer. Um, we do think it's hard to get at quarterback numbers, and we've kind of thrown up our hands at trying to look at individual numbers, and we just take the offensive performance yep. as as good a metric as we have. It's, it's kind of a punt because we recognize it's so hard. Like if you look at the individual things he does, you miss more than you miss if you just use the offensive stat as a whole. That's the argument. And, and I guess it also relates to um, the, the the point differential, like the Eagles, who are the best record in in football, that are considered the number one team. Their point differential isn't so massive, and there are a bunch of other teams that are way better, including Dallas. And in fact, one of my students is a big Dallas fan, and he's like pointing his finger at me and saying, "You know, we're coming for you." Uh, and and what what should I be making of the the record versus the the point differential? Usually, it's the point differential predicts better. You know, that's that sounds like a guy well-schooled in Pythagorean theorem from baseball. It sounds like a guy to me who's shorting the Eagles. And so we're going to make a note of that and we'll have those conversations. We'll have those conversations down the road. Very astute. All right, guys, that's been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second half of this week's show. The second half has become our go-to for guests. And indeed, this week we have another guest joining me, Eric, and Adi. is Bill Conley, one of the most frequent guests on the show, a go-to for us in the world of college football. Also, occasionally, his secondary and tertiary sports like tennis and soccer. <laughs> But we'll stay with college football now. Bill, a longtime college football writer, began with Aaron Schatz back in the day, SB Nation for a long time, paired up with Stephen Godfrey for a while on a terrific podcast, and now writes for ESPN, where he is often the front page story on a Sunday morning. So much fun to see. Bill, good morning. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) How are you guys? Good. I should say good afternoon. It is, in fact, Tuesday afternoon. Bill, this is uh, sitting between Rivalry Week and Conference Championship Week. We'll get the last of the the, the penultimate playoff rankings tonight, but mostly everything's going to be decided next weekend. Uh, as you're sitting here today, as you're thinking about the world of college football, as you're still recovering from what was probably the best weekend of the year. Oh, man. Uh, you just rated the 35 top games last weekend. That's quite a list for a single weekend. Topped off, of course, by Alabama's ridiculous win over Auburn. But I'm curious, Bill, you live, breathe, eat, drink college football pretty much 365 days a year. What is on your brain this Tuesday morning, this this propitious week we're sitting in at the near the end of the 2023 season? Well, I mean, I guess the big thing is like, do we finally get something unexpected? Um, Because this has been the strangest year when it comes to, I think for my Friday preview column, I'm just going to call it like highly entertaining chalk. Uh, We've constantly (laughs) all year, 
all year we've talked about like man, the the dominant teams don't seem quite as dominant as usual. Everybody seems vulnerable. It seems like this is a, you know, an opportunity for chaos or whatever. And then I added it up this morning and um, the top eight teams currently, which are, you know, the four preseason top four teams, Georgia, Alabama, uh, Michigan, Ohio state, plus Florida state, who was the ACC favorite plus Texas, who was the big 12 favorite. And then Washington and Oregon, who were two of the three uh, pac 12 favorites along with USC. Yeah. Yeah. They're combined 92 and four this year, um, 89 <laughs> and one against teams that aren't each other. Um, like that, the only loss, uh, among these eight teams that didn't happen amongst each other was Texas against Oklahoma and Oklahoma's, you know, 12th and 10 and two or whatever. So, uh, you know, wow. uh, Georgia, Georgia threatened to lose to Auburn and, and all, all these things threatened to happen. None of them did. And in theory, now we have a very, very high stakes, uh, I guess high stakes, um, championship weekend because of it yeah so, that's it's interesting just, you would think you would think with so many chances that something happening i mean we say these kinds of things <laughs> all the time so many chances of something happening something almost inevitable something almost with probability one would happen but it continually does not happen and so the, now what we would say bill is we don't usually have that many teams making it to this point in the season right unblemished i mean four undefeated four undefeated four undefeated yep. With a chance for all of them to remain undefeated next weekend. <laughs> I mean, that just never happens. No. So it's in that way, it's different. In that way, you could see a lot of different teams winning this thing. I mean, Michigan could win, Georgia could win, Oregon could win this thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Alabama apparently could win this thing. It's like you could, I mean, <laughs> Texas on a good day could win this thing. You could see a lot of different teams getting this done. And that alone is different. But you're right that just no, no upsets whatsoever. Bradlow. Yeah. So, Bill, just tell me, um, as everyone knows on Wharton Moneyball, I'm the chaos guy. I'm the one that prays for chaos. So what happens if Alabama beats Georgia? (laughs) So Alabama, I would think, correct me if I'm wrong. Let me go step by step just to get your Mm -hmm. opinion. I think Alabama has to go, right? They've beaten Georgia. They've won the SEC. They win the SEC title. They have the one loss to Texas. They have to go, right? I I don't think so. Um, so Alabama beats Georgia. They don't have to be one of the final four. I think they would benefit significantly from Texas also losing to Oklahoma State, which is a pretty big loss. Well, it's Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State just loves the taste of its own blood in its mouth, and and they're going to uh, Oklahoma State, Texas. OSU is going to trail twenty four seven in the second quarter, and then one of the two teams is going to go on like a thirty one nothing run, and either Texas wins by fifty or OSU wins outright. No, but That's Alabama how, or Georgia no. has to go. So if Alabama oh, right. beats Georgia, how could but, Alabama not go? But I think that that Texas win over Alabama is pretty defining. Um, it, it's been the way the committee works, and I realize this gets kind of blurry pretty quickly. But the way the committee always works is like you're legally required to rank ahead of a team you beat no matter what you did the other like 11 weeks or whatever and texas has whether they look good whether they have a backup quarterback with and and look kind of shaky whatever it is they continue to rank ahead of alabama uh in the cfp rankings because they won head to head and so I, I realize if if we throw an alabama win over georgia in there and you've got three teams with one loss and and you know head to heads or you know the transit property fails th- weird things could happen Alabama has not been one of the four best teams in the country. Alabama has no. been the worst of the one loss teams. And I don't think at the, I mean, nothing's going to surprise me, but I I really don't think at this point that they would jump. <sighs> yeah, I, I don't think so. I think if Alabama beats Georgia, I think Georgia falls to four, Alabama rises to five or six and Georgia still makes it at this point. That would oh, make years. Yeah. Oh my God. I hope <laughs> this. I so pray. It's not because I like any of I just this will give us years to talk about on Wharton Moneyball. This would be fantastic. <laughs> well, I disagree. I disagree. And I, I actually I don't I don't I don't share your sentiment, Bill, but um I th- I just think that Alabama would get so much credit for beating Georgia if they do. I think um, but I mean I look I've been wrong about the committee a lot and they're not exactly consistent, <laughs> so they're hard to predict. Well, right. Yeah, that's that's. Um, uh, there has been just enough contradiction that you can you don't never quite know. But I do think Georgia's the distance that Georgia is ahead of Alabama right now, and again, justifiably, Alabama's been about the eighth best team in the country this year, which probably means we're talking about nothing because Georgia's going to win. But yeah, um, I, I do think. I guess I would be really, really surprised if now, again, if Texas loses and kind of clears the board for them to just go straight head to head, 
I think that helps Alabama. Um, it, it gives them a little extra room, uh, you know, to work with. But if Texas wins and they still have that head to head over Alabama, I think that, that everything kind of cancels itself out and Georgia stays number four. Well, let's 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 um, talk just a bit more about it and then move on. If you had to pick your four, who your four um, and, and where and where do you think and where's your most where's your most important sensitivity analysis? Who's your four and who's your who's your fifth in a in a in a permutation? Yeah, I think. Um, well, it's funny, like I, I, I'm predicting chalk because that has been the theme of the season. But does that mean yeah. the unbeaten Washington beats the one loss Oregon or does it mean the favorite Oregon beats the underdog well, Washington? This, Bill, this. This is one of the most interesting things about the weekend. I saw this a couple of weeks ago. Whenever I think it was whenever you saw the line for the Oregon Oregon State, the line that blew me away was Oregon State favored against Washington, just one and a half yeah. or so, but they were favored. Yeah. And then Oregon goes in there, and they're favored against them by like eight. And you're like, oh man, transitivity, and actually does hold <laughs> when it comes to betting lines. Transitivity says the Oregon's going to be a nine or so point favorite against Washington. And sure enough, they are. And people didn't expect that at all, especially since Washington won that first game and has stayed undefeated. But I think it's safe to say chalk. I mean, it depends on what chalk, like you say, it feels chalkier for the undefeated win, but nine points is a lot to overcome. It's a lot. Yeah, no, I think if we, and and yeah, it's like, I've been getting yelled at because my SP plus ratings now have Washington down at 11th. They still like Washington more than the sports books do. Um, it has Oregon by eight in this game. So that, that has been really interesting. And I mean, it's not hard to figure out why I had, I had Washington fourth after they beat Oregon the first time and they haven't played like a top four team since and therefore they've fallen. And, um, but yeah, so if we're assuming chalk means Georgia being in Alabama, um, Michigan beating Iowa, which is probably pretty safe. Um, Florida State beating 23 Louisville. point line, people. 20, yeah. 23 point line there. So we're okay. Florida State beating Louisville, which I think last I saw was down to like two and a half or three. For two and a half. Season. That's yeah. that's blessedly nearing a coin flip, which is great <laughs> for Texas. And so those three and Oregon beating uh, Washington, then I think those are your four. Um, I know we tried to create something last week when when Jordan Travis got hurt. And, you know, what if Florida State wins but doesn't look good and and so on and yeah. so forth? I think I just do not see a the, the college football playoff committee leaving out an unbeaten power conference team. Um, and yeah. so I just, I, I even if they only beat Louisville by one and Alabama, well, if Alabama beats Georgia by like 40 or something, we'll talk. But I do think I, there are just not many scenarios on the table where Florida State wins and doesn't get in. So I think those are your four. Do you have a position on uh, Alabama, Georgia? About a six point line or so, which I think has grown since it opened, I think. And so I I, I, I get sucked into this story that Alabama is going to actually pull the upset after a couple of years of getting beaten in that game. Gritty but, um, underdog Alabama. Yeah, uh, right, right. Getting one over on the big guys. Get on um, the Mill Road train, man. I mean, come on. He, he's a miracle puller, apparently. <laughs> well, and I do think he kind of... Georgia does have one vulnerability right now, and it's that they're really, really mediocre defending the run. And Alabama's going to run the ball. And Milrow, what we saw against LSU, like they've been trying to kind of keep him contained and not run him all the time. But when it's a big game, they're going to run him all the time. And I could see it working pretty well against Georgia. So they're going to have a lot to handle. The Georgia offense is so ruthless, uh, just so consistently efficient. They do a great job. You know, it was Nick Saban saying, you know, it's, it's what players, not plays. That's his line. Um, they do a great job of like, well, it's third and six time to go to Bowers. Let's, let's call a play for Bowers. Let's call a play for McConkey. Let's run the ball, uh, nonstop if they don't have enough guys in the box and so on and so forth. Georgia's going to score even against a good Alabama defense that also isn't amazing against the run as we saw yeah, last right. week. So, right, right, right. But Al- so Alabama's going to have to keep up an attract meet, but that with that run game, they might. It's it's a really fun run game, and they don't really get knocked off schedule. When they do, they get sacked in the drive-ins, but um, they'll have a chance. Okay, you're 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 pulling me into the story, man. Here's my narrative: <laughs> desirability bias, wishful thinking for Bill. Michigan's in, obviously. I think Oregon's going to trump Washington. I'm going to go with the Louisville upset over Florida State because I've got to find a way to get Texas in there. And then I'm going to go with Alabama over Georgia. So Michigan, Alabama, Texas, Oregon, that's a good final four, man. Let's do that. Let's do that one. Eric, what are you trying to jump in here for? Yeah, the only comment I wanted to make is, do you think the temporal or I'm surprised actually at some of the temporal orderings of the game. So I'm just looking at this now. It appears that Oregon, Washington is on Friday, which is kind of interesting. So we'll know that piece of information. Yep. Um, Texas, Oklahoma State is at noon on Saturday, which means it's before the Georgia-Alabama game or the Florida Louis, Florida State-Louisville game. 
Do you think there's any, I don't want to call it this way, but like, would you swing your win probabilities at all based on what happens <laughs> in those two games? Like, you know, extra motivation, you know, the narrative that comes out, not that these teams don't have motivation, but like, let's say, you know, every path for Alabama to get in is basically eliminated or something like that. Does it change right. anything for you or no? I guess the one in terms of that order, I guess the one thing, the one case you could maybe make is if Texas loses and that really does increase Alabama's shots of making it if they went on. It's Alabama, Georgia. They're going to be 100% motivated anyway. So I, I can't, I don't know if I can make that case. And, and Florida State knows on the Saturday evening game, Florida State knows they have to win and get in. Um, Michigan, I mean, if all the other favorites win and Texas looks awesome, um, I still wouldn't want to be Michigan if if you just lost to Iowa because – they just, I mean, the committee went out of their way to tell them your schedule sucks uh, all season. Um, it, they were clearly the number one team in the country, the best team in the country for much of the season. And they still rank third uh, in the CFP. Now, obviously, they just beat Ohio State, so they'll move up. Um, but I still don't know if I would want to be Michigan losing to Iowa with all these other favorites looking awesome and winning. So I'm not I'm not willing to say that Michigan's absolutely in no matter what. Um, but uh, they're not going to lose to Iowa. So yeah, exactly. Matter. Exactly. The, 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 what would matter is not going to happen. So it's okay. Um, Bill, talk to us about the Heisman trophy. You got a J- Jaden Daniels case. Is that right? I'm surprised uh, given what he's doing that people think that he's still maybe not the favorite against I, Bo Nix. Is just because we've heard Bo Nix's name for six straight years and familiarity <laughs> works that way. Well, is that what's going on? I, it was really, it's been really confusing to me. And, and obviously, you know, my own little approach to the Heisman is different and just because it produced but, the right result last year. Uh, Bill, so- I love your approach. Your approach is brilliant. <laughs> Bill, said, Bill says every week, he says, this is, this is who won the Heisman this week. He ranks them one to whatever you rank, 10 or ten, something. Yeah, one and to then 10. You get points, 10 points yep. for first nine, and then you just add up the points. And so now you forget about recency bias or whatever. It's just every week, look what happened on the field and rank them one to 10. Yeah. And so... Like Jaden Daniels won this thing in October. Um, doing with my ten point scale, he had such a run of games. I got to watch one of them in person here at Missouri, um, where he was the reason LSU won the game. Uh, they lost three games because their defense allowed forty seven points per game in those three games. But um, the only time he was ever iffy all season was in the second half against uh, against Florida State. Otherwise, he's been um, he's been Kyler Murray this year. Kyler Murray won the Heisman. So um, I, I just he's the also way been- he was. Joe Burrow, in a way, right? I saw some Burrow stats a week ago that look remarkably similar, and where they were different, he was better. Yeah, no, he's he's been unbelievable, and so the fact that he hasn't become the favorite has really confused me. Now, Bo Nix has absolutely like he had four hundred plus against USC, four hundred plus the next week, like three hundred plus last week. He's he's turned it on um, down the stretch for sure, and he would absolutely be my number two, but. The fact that he's been, he was the betting favorite last week and he still is, even though Jane Daniels is still going out there and putting up 200 and 100 every week. Uh, just, it just confused me. I didn't expect it the way that played out because I think Daniels has been clearly the most outstanding player in the country. And even if Nix has been number two, uh, if he wins it, it's like you're, he's winning it because his defense is better than Daniels defense. And I don't like, I've, I've never liked that. And I definitely don't like it here. Right. Yeah, Bill, I'm just going to ask you, have you ever um, done a study of, let's call it, growth during college of players? Like, um, to me, when I saw Bo Nix play for Auburn, I was like, man, man, this guy stinks. He's absolutely (laughs) horrific. And now I watch him play. It almost seems like a different player. So have have people, whether it's you or someone like you, done studies of kind of the trajectory of players within college? Yeah, I mean, I, a long time ago, I did just kind of a general, like, when do when does a guy improve the most kind of deal? It usually says, like, after your first year as a starter is when you improve the most. But you do. I mean, we have plenty of anecdotes. Uh, the, the My favorite stories are the kind of the late growth guys like him, like Jaden Daniels. I had no idea Jaden Daniels was capable of what he did this year. Um, like Joe Burrow in 2019, like Vince Young about halfway through 2004, gets be- he gets benched against Missouri. He's absolutely awful for a few games in 04 and then just becomes Vince Young all of a sudden. Um, those are really cool stories. And and um Nick's is absolutely one of them. He yeah, you're right. Like at Auburn, I was very confused because people tried to hype him up as like a future NFL guy or whatever. And I just never saw it. He just seemed like a 
you know, he was playing YOLO ball, just, you know, I'm going to make something. It's Bo Nix time. I'm going to make something happen right now. Uh, and a lot of times that was really fun. And a lot of times it was absolutely disastrous. Then he goes up to Oregon and plays the most controlled ball in the country. You cannot knock them off schedule ever. And the only way you can make stops apparently is, is like on fourth downs, uh, like Washington did. And so the, like the, that change, uh, you know, he, he got into the right system. He matured, obviously it, it made such a spectacular difference. And he's been like over two years, he's absolutely been better than Jaden Daniels. He's probably been better than Michael Penix at this point, at least, although I love Michael Penix talk about a story. I didn't, you didn't see coming. I mean, he stunk his last year in Indiana because he had like three disastrous. And, knee and injuries. even given that bill, what's your forecast for where Bonix is drafted in the order of quarterbacks? Cause people are talking about at least two other quarterbacks ahead, yeah. maybe three or four. Well, I think what we've seen recently, like I, it, you know, a lot of people were reacting to that cross the field throw he made against Oregon State last week where he's scrambling to his right, sees a guy wide open, makes the throw you're absolutely not supposed to make, but absolutely drills it. I think his arm strength maybe is better than we expected. And he's playing in this system where he doesn't necessarily show it a lot, but uh, it does seem like he's got the arm strength. He's got mobility. He's got a lot of things working for him. He might, he's not going to be Caleb Williams. He's not going to be Drake May. They kind of, in terms of hype head starts, they both got a much bigger head start than he did. Uh, and honestly, they're probably, you know, better throwers, better athletes, whatever. But I, at this point, I could, I could see him going in the first round. And you tell me that two years ago, and I would have just laughed my, my, Hard out. Just a follow up from a statistician's perspective. Is he the kind of player, maybe just related to your comment about arm strength? Like, is it important for him for an for an uncertainty reduction perspective to participate either in the combine or pro day? Like Drake May and Caleb Williams, they could sit there in an armchair yeah. on pro day and they're going first, second, third, somewhere like that. But does does Bo Nick someone that can actually benefit because of the uncertainty reduction? Uh, it's possible, yeah. I mean, I kind of hate that because I do feel like quarterbacks, especially, you know, it's not even you're not even running the 40. You're just throwing passes to guys running around in shorts. Um, you're making those whatever they call them off platform throws, uh, you know, to yeah, that look amazing. And that's that tells me absolutely nothing. Zach Wilson had a great off platform throw, um, you know, so I, I I would hope that doesn't make a difference just because I hate that data point, really. Um, but yes, I think you're absolutely if they can, you know, these these scouts who see the 70 percent, whatever, 80 percent almost completion rate um, and, you know, uh, the the growth and suddenly he's winning the Heisman or whatever. And then you go see him in person and he can run around in shorts and make off platform throws that probably will make a difference whether it should or not. How, how should we think about the age of these guys as <laughs> we know that the analytics generally discounts players at the NFL draft stage for being older. So you get a, if the guys in general, if the guy's doing reasonably well as a 19 year old, he's going to project better as an NFL in, in any position, but including quarterbacks, it's almost, it's almost, it's almost the other side of this coin. It's like, if they look so much better in their fifth year, it's fair to discount. It's fair to credit such a Caleb Williams, who we've only seen play two full seasons, two right. and a half years, or something. And so that's a that'd be a big. That's going to be a knock on Knicks, and I think it might be a reasonable knock on Knicks. You, you can look at it at the earlier stage as well. These kids who max out in high school, you know, an offensive lineman might look really good in high school. He's just bigger than everybody else, and he may not have the underlying athletic ability. You might take a raw guy who's big bone, not completely filled out and athletic, and he's going to develop better as a college player. It's kind of the same calculus at the NFL stage. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes sense. And, uh, you know, Caleb Williams doing what he did in his second year of college last year versus what Bo Nix is doing in his fifth or right. Michael Penix in his 17th or whatever we're at now with <laughs> right. him. Yeah. I mean, that, that, you know, if I'm investing in a guy and hoping that he grows more in the future, then yeah, you're taking the 21 year old over the 24 year old or whatever. Mm -hmm. Bill, we're one of the things we've noted a little bit in passing. It's gotten busy here at this time of year, but we know, you know, this is kind of the end of an era. People talked about it with the Michigan Ohio State game last weekend. This is the last time in the foreseeable future we'll have a game, that game with the stakes that the game had. Ohio State season was essentially over. They're going to go to a bowl game. They don't care about the bowl game. And Michigan's got three more games in front of them potentially. We won't have those kinds of stakes with the 12 team playoff. There's virtues. But there's some downside. So we're at this moment of transition. Also, USC, UCLA, Oregon, Washington, the entire top half of the Pac-12 <laughs> moving to the Big Ten. Texas OU moving to the SEC. It's exciting in some ways 
and it's sad in other ways. How are you feeling about this transition? Are you soaking up properly this last of the this era <laughs> of college football? And then how do you begin thinking about what it means for your job next year? Yeah, what admiration do you have for someone that was at the Michigan-Ohio State game, the game of the century? If I'll just throw that. I was at the game, Bill. Just go ahead. Sorry. Answer Kate's question. No, I, I'm not worried about – like yeah, the, the stakes will be different moving forward for Michigan-Ohio State, but it's still going to be Michigan-Ohio State. Um, I just This is where I just say trust the sport. Uh, the big games are still going to – the big rivalry games are still going to be big rivalry games. Alabama-Auburn didn't mean a whole lot, especially to Auburn, and it was still absolutely spectacular in every way. So in that sense, like those games are going to be huge, even if we have the possibility of watching them twice, um, you know, Michigan-Ohio State, and then next week it's Michigan-Ohio State again in the Big Ten Championship. Um, it's still going to matter, and it's still going to – you know, if Ryan Day loses that game, uh, even if his team is – safely in the playoff that's still gonna so i'm not like the stakes are gonna still be really high for any of those rivalry games but you're right like we're, we're basically making a giant trade next year of these games uh, you know these huge rivalry games that you know oregon washington or michigan ohio state they mean slightly less just because of you know both teams are in the playoff no matter what but we're also making all these other conference title games mean more all these other the conference race you know three or four or five teams from each from, from this conference to that conference now have have a shot at the playoff they're still trying to fight to get into the last weekend so i think we have as many or more big games with big stakes we're just kind of divvying it out the, the stakes out a little differently so I'm, I'm excited about that the one thing i'm not i cannot get excited about the this this round of realignment um as a mizzou guy who misses Oklahoma. I grew up in Oklahoma. My best, you know, my high school best friends are OU fans. They come up to a game each year. Next year, they get to come up as OU fans instead of as, you know, cosplaying Missouri fans for a weekend. Um, Like I missed that game a lot. And, and so I'm really excited. Like that SEC move, we get OU Missouri, we get Texas, Arkansas, we get OU A&M and Texas A&M, of course, we get these old rivalries back. Um, even though we're also really screwing with the big 12 as a whole, and then the big 12 screws with itself, they're not even making Kansas state, Iowa state, a permanent rivalry. So we're just really going to get weird at that level. The big 10 move broke my brain and I cannot, I, I hate it. I hate the big 10 move. I hate at least OU Texas was ge- geographically sensible. Uh, it was a, to a connected state. Um, having USC and Oregon and Washington and UCLA not even playing each other every year. Oregon and USC will play as often as Oregon and Rutgers. That blew my mind that they made those choices. Um, and I, I just hate it. I it's it, add that to the fact that our playoff race next year will basically have like you know the top ten will be eight teams from two conferences. Therefore, the conference title races won't be even including like six of the top 10, like our conference title games, I should say. Like mm-hmm. I, I just, uh, that concentration of two co- play uh, conferences, the way it happened, I hate it. Um, and I'm just going to have to get over it because it's not, it's here. But um, the Big Ten especially just, I, I I cannot get myself to liking that one. I, I hear you hundred percent. And the PAC 12 has really showed itself well on the way out. This is the best season <laughs> I've had yep. forever. Now I will say the big 10 is a ridiculous conference. The last four or five years, if yep. you look at like our friend CFB, Nate, who, who does a nice visualization, he's, he port, he's ensembles some ratings like yours. Yep. And then he does this nice visualization of all the conferences, teams broken up by conference. You've got these three big 10 teams, on the far right, you know, up in the top 10 and 12 with everybody. And then the rest of the nine are down here looking like, you know, group of five teams, essentially this massive gap. And it's been that way for a while. I mean, Penn state, poor Penn state, you know, beats everybody all the time, except for Michigan or Ohio state. There's just two losses every year, Michigan, Ohio state beat everybody, you know, Ohio state will lose to Purdue randomly, but generally they've only got two meaningful games. So it's ridiculous that conference and bringing in four teams, to kind of fill out that upper middle tier yep. will be in that just strictly abstract competitive sense. But I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. No, the, the big 10 East right now, in terms of average SP plus ratings, the big 10 East, or West, excuse me, is much, much closer to the Sunbelt East than the SEC yeah. East this yeah. year. It's absurd. much closer. It's hilarious. Um, and so and, well, on this point real quick, because you've had this experience of Mizzou moving to the SEC, you've had, and, and you've had the experience of Mizzou, man, in the two thousands, great team, Super competitive Big 12 title games, Big 12 titles for all I remember. 
but then they go in their middle class in the SEC. Yeah. And it's like, okay, how have you enjoyed that trade-off, Bill? What <laughs> advice do you have to the Texases and Oklahomas of the world as they move into kind of upper – they move up in class? Well, I think – we we sometimes when we're talking about the SEC, we act like it's nine Georgias, right? Um, where, you know, Oklahoma's going to move to the SEC. They're going to be playing Georgia and Alabama four times each. It's going to be it's brutal. No, there are a lot of Kentuckys in the SEC, just and Missouri's teams that when they have their act together, they're good. And when they don't, they're not. And so if you have your act together, you're fine in the SEC. Maybe if we average it out over a long period of time, maybe it's like half a win less per, per year. Or if they ever go to nine conference games, maybe it's like three quarters of a, a win uh, difference at absolute most, which I realize for OU fans, especially, you know, if you're going nine and three instead of 10 to every year, like you're going to notice that and it's going to start to drive you crazy after a while, but you're still going to be living pretty well. You're still going to be, you know, play com- competing for a 12 team playoff, all that stuff. But yeah, with Missouri, it's it's been under their control to be just fine in the SEC. They, you know, they won the two East titles in their second and third years in the conference. And those were they really had their act together. And especially the second year, most of the East did not. Um, but they still won a lot of games when they had their act together. Then they fell apart in 15 and stayed falling apart for a little while, stayed extremely mediocre and went six and six. And now they're good again and they're 10 and two again. So, yeah, if you're Oklahoma and Texas, you are going to have a, a one or two extra marquee games, one or two extra games you could potentially lose in a given year. And maybe that adds up over time, but they're going to be fine. It's not like they're going to suddenly. I I almost made a joke about Texas going five and seven. Who could imagine Texas going five and seven? But <laughs> hey, 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 I just in past. I, 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 I can't even remember that long ago, Bill. Eric. Yes, Bill. Let me ask you like three rapid fire questions. Yes. And I think you can answer them each in like 20 seconds. The first one, next year's structure, while you're not that excited about it, is there any incentive? Like the top four do get a buy. So yeah. is that worth anything? I mean, we know it's worth it, it tremendously increases your probability of winning, but isn't that incentive to like win that final game in that championship? Cause that gets you a buy. Oh yeah. No, I mean, that's and that as long as that exists, as long as those conference auto bids exist. And as long as the buys exist, those other conferences matter. Um, and I mean, that's very important in the overall structure. We're not going to suddenly have a 12 team playoff with 11 teams from the big 10. And, and also, SEC. as you know, they're slotted in. So it's like right. if Florida state wins the ACC. It's not like the second team in the sec gets ranked ahead of them. It's yeah. not the way it works. So that, that right. was my well, right, right now it's not Eric, but these things are fluid. And in I last I heard, right SEC was going to start advocating for the conferences not right. getting one of those automatic I agree. Right. I think it's yeah, basically we have two years of this structure and the best possible thing that could happen with this structure is like whoever gets the three seed next year out of the big 12 like utah or kansas state whoever wins the big 12 next year winning that quarterfinal game not like Agreed. losing by 28 points to an sec team what? that would be that'd be pretty disastrous if we want to keep those buys in the future my right. second my second my second is a question slash comment um <laughs> do they are they going to recede and that's my first question. And then my second comment is, do you think they'll take matchups into account? Like they won't schedule it so that Michigan and Ohio State, who just played in the Big Ten championship game, are playing the next week in the playoffs. Do you think they'll actually take that into account? And do you know if they recede? They don't recede, um, as far as I know. And again, we have a two-year experiment, so who knows? But I don't think so. I think I think they know that the public likes brackets just ha- here's the bracket here's what it's going to look like let's all make our picks and predictions and all that so i think that alone uh, we're not going to recede but um I, I i just completely i started picturing no, I saying, are they going to take into account two teams playing right, right, right. consecutive weeks so last year uh, Michigan and Ohio State made the playoff and magically TCU ended up ranking th- what fourth uh, or third third against Michigan instead of uh, even though they just lost and you probably could have said they should drop to fourth they were magically third and therefore Michigan played TCU instead of Ohio State again I think things like that where because the way this committee works is they go team by team they basically let's let's talk let's compare out you know Michigan to Georgia to Ohio State okay let's all vote for number one and then they do their little secret ballot and it comes up number one's Georgia then they go number two I think basically there's not going to be any sort of outright conspiracy of you know what let's do this instead but uh, a bunch of individuals will vote and a lot of them will say, oh, if we vote Ohio State's whatever, fifth, fourth instead of fifth, that means they play Michigan next and maybe I'll hold them off till fifth instead. I think it becomes kind of a, a subconscious thing as much as anything. And I think that will help us avoid rematches at least a, a hair. 
And my last one, just quickly, there is a fifth undefeated team. How dare the two of you leave out Liberty? <laughs> Liberty. Am I nuts to want to see in a 12-team playoff Liberty or Tulane jammed in there to the number? Oh, they will be. They will uh, be. Just to see, no, but just to see what would happen. Like, yeah. Liberty beat everybody they played. I understand they, you know, whatever. Am I nuts to want to see that game? No, you'll see, like, we'll, that, that is the one, and that better stay when we redo this in two years. That, that We better still have that group of five representative in there. That was the whole th- reason I wanted a 12-team playoff was for the first time ever, like, all of FBS would actually have a chance to make it. Um, so right now, yes, like, if this if there are a 12-team playoff this year, both of those teams and probably SMU would be fighting for the number, well, the number 12 seed, basically, in a game against Ohio State, probably. Um, well, but, that's, that's, there's a there's a neat wrinkle in there. Well, it's I hate the buys personally. I wish it was yep. eight with no buys. The buys are such an advantage. But one of the upsides of the buy is that it takes that top tier out of the first round of games. Mm-hmm. And so the worst team in the draw doesn't play the best team in the draw straight right. off out of the box yeah. because that would be brutal. They would be in an 18 buy, Liberty would be eight and Georgia right. would be one and people would die. And that would be bad. <laughs> But Liberty against uh, an Ohio State team with a flawed offense, uh, you know, yeah, just, maybe just, you can because Liberty will be better. Liberty's a solid better. team, um, but they all the reason they're not the highest ranked G five team right now is that they have played like literally the weakest schedule in the country, um, and the committee's clearly holding that against them. But I think, yeah, like that's always been my thought is if you're an FBS and you win all your games, you have the best best team you've ever fielded. You should get to win until you lose. And um, I, I think right now, at least, I'm pretty sure that part will stay. Um, and, and and that should be the case moving forward. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, Bill. Hey, one last wrinkle. If Texas doesn't make the playoffs, then uh, the last I saw, there's some chance oh, we end up seeing our teams end up seeing <sighs> each other. Cotton Bowl, that's, Texas, that's Missouri. That's the one I don't like. I, I missed I missed playing Oklahoma because I grew up with that one. <laughs> Missouri and Texas only played like five times ever. And they, you know, they still kind of, I, I still just didn't miss that game at all. We're going to get it again in the future. I'd rather play like a Penn state. That's, that's really my goal here is to end up yeah. with like Penn state or Ohio state that's hilarious. And knowing that's that hilarious. Texas is coming, but it's going to be Missouri, Texas in the cotton bowl. And it's going to annoy me here. Here I am talking about <laughs> Texas, Missouri, problems. Texas, major Missouri, bowls, Missouri's in a major bowl, and I'm going to complain about who. That's right. Play. That's right. I was hoping you might look forward to it, but maybe I'll work on you again in a couple of weeks if that comes to pass. <laughs> no, All right, Bill I mean, Conley. We'll talk. Thanks for making time for us, man. Enjoy this time of year. Absolutely. You can find him at at ESPN underscore Bill C at ESPN underscore Bill C, or just peruse ESPN's website. A lot of work from Bill Conley up there. Great person to stay in touch with, especially this time of year. That's been another Wharton Moneyball, another full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM for the whole crew, Audie Weiner and Eric Bradlow, who have been in here the whole time. Audie, quietly in this last half hour. For Shane Jensen in absentia, across the pond. For Matty Dass, the boss man, Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next time. Until now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.